Medicare for all. Your bros can suck my balls. Fuck your reply, guys. Please don't fuck your reply, guys. Just listen to reply, guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. I'm so excited this week um, that we are joined by a return guest who is probably known to almost everyone who listens to the show. Um, welcome, Brianna Joy Gray. Thank you. It's so nice to be back. And it was so nice it's, to have you recently on one of my all-time favorite episodes of Bad Faith. <laughs> that was so funny. It was so fun. I love that. Okay, can I tell you that later that week, um, I went out on a date with a guy, and he admitted to me that he had listened to that episode <laughs> because he wanted to try to, like, do research about me and what I liked and stuff. And, like, <laughs> he's like, if someone that you were going to go on a date with, like, published a podcast episode describing their feelings about dating, wouldn't you listen to it? I mean, and fair I'm enough. like, maybe I would. Yeah, but it was funny. I, he was asking me about, like, specific things I said on the show <laughs> and stuff like that. So. I mean, that's a real liability. I will confess that the guy I've been sort of seeing listened to the episode and has not spoken to me since. <laughs> I've had that happen to me before. I was like, I made fun of this guy that I was dating on a, a podcast, like a podcast I used to have before Reply Guys, and uh, he listened to it, and he sent me a text. It was like, wow, now I really know what you think about things. And I was like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess I shouldn't have like made fun of the person that I was actively dating on the show. But on, on the other hand, he was funny, so I don't know. It's a, it's a hazard of the trade. Is it for you? Is it um like a? Is it new to like venture into the territory of like talking about your personal life and podcasts? I mean, I when I was an anonymous person, you know, like four years ago, uh, I had a podcast with my best friend called "Someone's Wrong on the Internet," and I mean, I was I was in a relationship at the time, so it wasn't quite so fraught. Uh, but we talked about I think a lot more intimacies in our lives back then, partly because we were purely anonymous, partly because I didn't feel that this dual responsibility to be kind of a public figure with a certain amount of respectability who can be a credible interlocutor for left ideas and all of that stuff. I was just a, a random anonymous human who I felt like had no platform. The only way I was going to get one was in part by being really sincere and honest and open in a way that I think people find it to be appealing. So. We took all those episodes down when I joined the Bernie campaign, in part just because, you know, Bernie shouldn't have to answer for my, you know, raunchy depiction of fish sex in that Oscar-winning movie that was <laughs> all over the back then. <laughs> Bernie Sanders should have to answer for literally everything, including men on the internet with 15 followers. Um, Bernie Sanders has to answer for all of my ex-boyfriends. I'll tell you that. Well, someone uh, has to answer for them. <laughs> yeah. I, what was Bernie doing to stop this? You know, um, I need Bernie Sanders to apologize immediately for what his followers that I was in long-term relationships with did. Um, I don't like it. So, yeah. Um, well, I wish I wish there were more. I wish there were more Bernie Bros. For all the talk about Bernie Bros, I find them to be. Sadly, in short supply out here in these relationship streets. So the search continues. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I mean, to me, like, uh, you know, 
whatever people say about Bernie bros, I, I realized at a certain point, like earlier this year, that I don't know how to start a relationship with anyone anymore without like Bernie Sanders being involved in it in some way. I was like, I didn't realize this guy was like matchmaking me. You know what I mean? Uh, so, okay. Um, you know, th- that was a different, last time you, you came on the show, it was like a, a, di- a different time, right? Like Bernie Sanders was still running for president. You were still the press secretary. Obviously a lot of stuff has happened since then. Most of it, not, not great, great, honestly. Not great. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, I, I feel, uh, to me, like, one thing that I've been thinking about a lot is, like, you know, is there a way to, like, you know, sort of keep the left mm together is there left like what is it like to me like without this sort of like unifying thing of like a lot of people like supporting the same candidate um i know you've had like a a ton of people from all across the left on bad faith Mm. and as you know curious like after doing all those interviews like do you think that these folks have enough in common even (laughs) to like work for our political goals together yeah it's funny how often some spat will erupt online between two people who have both been on the podcast who I both consider to be friends who I both like even if I don't always agree with every aspect of what they say and part of why I do do some of these episodes where we bring you know two divergent people together is because it's you know personally frustrating for me to watch folks who I like scrap it up in such ugly personal ways in the internet just because they disagree disagree about something i'm like i disagree about with both of you yokels and i'm not out here screaming at you online about it um the i've been you know i've asked a lot of guests this question and obviously i think this is like the singular question that's occupying a lot of people's minds on the left and where i am at at this point is that I think that, yes, part of it is that Bernie's not here to unify us, and that's obviously part of the issue. But another part of it is that there's just this distinct lack of compassion and humanism in the way that we are interacting with each other. And I don't know. Online. Online, yeah. And I don't know if that yeah. was, it was Bernie that created an environment where we were just all being nice to each other because it was under the umbrella of Bernie, or whether it was something about his approach to politics and the discourse that foregrounded humanist values and the ideas of the idea that healthcare is a human right, I think in some way is inextricable from the idea that there's this intrinsic human value and talking about those policies and talking about it in those terms forced us to recognize each other as human beings with that same intrinsic value. And that helped the discourse. I don't know which of those things it is, but I certainly think that we can deal with each other humanistically without Bernie Sanders and the reason that I am even a leftist, the reason I came to left politics is, and I'm not, you know, a red diaper baby. I didn't, you know, read Marx in college and decide like this is my worldview. But I was raised by, you know, a, a mother by parents who really stressed those kind of basic core principles and values. And some some people might argue that I have a tolerance for, you know, bad bad takes and bad politics and people who the the others don't agree with because I have sympathy for them. But I think it's more that I have a really hard time, no matter how abhorrent a person's views are divorcing their personhood from it. And I am more than happy always to critique the belief less so 
to say and do things that, that would deny their basic humanity and maybe that's a flaw. Maybe there's some people whose humanity do need to be denied and they need to be thrown into the gulag. And I, I admit that I could be wrong about that. But I think if everyone came to all of these conversations with a little bit more of the spirit of, at the end of the day, I'm dealing with a human being who wakes up every day and puts pants on and like takes care of their kids or a and dress. all that. Right? <laughs> or a dress. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think about this a lot because I've been thinking about just some of the ideas that you were just mentioning about like to what degree like are we, you know, obligated to to treat people whose views we find abhorrent you know with like basic humanity and like ever, all of the discourse around the vaccine mm -hmm. has been sort of like a, a test case for mm -hmm. that because i mean there are people that are just you know absolutely wrong and everything that they believe is like really terrible in my opinion but at the same time like it may be impossible to get out of a public health emergency without them participating yeah. in this way. Like, you know, we want them to get vaccinated. We also don't want them to die, right? right. Like, well, some people do. I mean, that's yeah. the thing. There's definitely a cohort of people on the internet and in real life who are like, you deserve this, you should die. You didn't get vaccinated, you deserve to die. And there's people who say, oh, you're in a red state, you should die. And when it, the shoe was on the other foot and it's Republicans saying, you deserve Hurricane Katrina because you guys are gay or like whatever yeah. the, the rationale where we obviously found that to be abhorrent. And I don't know, did you read Elizabeth Brunig's uh, Atlantic piece recently about the the talking people out of vaccines and... Oh, I haven't actually had a chance to, to read that one yet. Yeah, it's good. I mean, she talks about this issue of shaming, which is really at the core of a lot of this, right? And I wrote an article about this years and years ago for Current Affairs. Used to be propped up. One of them, the cop used to be propped up behind me. But it was about the politics of shaming. And frankly, even if even if you want to do it, even if you're completely justified in doing it, which I would argue you are. I mean, people do shameful things that I find to be personally morally repugnant, and you know, I would be warranted in shaming them. The question is, does it work? Like, what yeah. is the political utility of shaming? And every psychological study in the world will tell you that it just doesn't work. Shame is a, it's a, it's an ego-driven, shaming people is ego-driven. You do it because it makes you feel good, not because it's going to change anybody else's behavior. And in fact, studies show that it's more likely to make them dig in their heels and become entrenched in their beliefs. Yeah. So what you're, you're literally making it worse while making yourself feel better. It's the most selfish thing in the world to do, but people feel self-righteous about it and, and act like they are truly doing the world a service by wagging their finger at somebody. And it's like, if it worked, I would allow it. If it worked, then great, we should all do it. But it's there's something like just is so perverse about how people are willing to discard any 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 technique that might actually yeah. yield the result that they say they care about. Racial equity, yeah. people being vaccinated, whatever. Like they can't get their own ego out of the way enough to actually affect the change that they claim they want to see. And that's why I start yeah. to say that some of this stuff feels performative. The shaming at the end of the day, if you know it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And you're doing it anyway. You're doing it for yourself and you're doing it to like signal somehow that you care more about issues than other people. And I just feel like that's so backward as a member of one of the groups that, <laughs> that is allegedly supposed to be protected. A couple of the groups, you know, we have this abortion issue you know all of the racial terrorism and stuff going on it's like i'm my perspective is that what serves my own personal interest as a marginalized person is taking on these people head on and showing a certain degree of compassion if it's going to make them get the vaccine if it's going to make them 
you know, stop being believing whatever ridiculous thing or voting for Trump or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree with you that like, you know, it, it, it makes sense to, to think about, you know, what is going to work when this, when the stakes are really high. And I, I think it's an okay goal to try to persuade people. Um, and I think that like, it, it is weird to see, you know, the sort of liberal backlash to anyone making the case that like, no, actually, like, we should persuade Trump voters to not vote for Trump. Like, that seems like it should be an easy one. And the straw, you know? the straw man is, well, you can't get all Trump voters. Some of them are extreme, so we shouldn't try. And it's like, of course, you're not going to get all of them. But the way that democracy works is that you just need more than half. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And like, you look, I mean, I, I can't believe, like, we're still in this place because I truly wrote all of this in articles back in 2017. Yeah. Um, but I can <laughs> see the frustration there. Yeah. But like, there was a such thing as an Obama to Trump voter. And that that swing is what literally caused Trump to win. I mean, but yeah. for the Obama to Trump voter, Hillary would have won. And so totally all those people can be racist. Call them racist. They're racist. All right. They're racist. But there were racists who voted for Obama. And we need those racists <laughs> to vote for a, de- a Democratic candidate going forward. So why wouldn't you try to interrogate what made them vote for Obama sometimes twice? And then not want to vote for Hillary Clinton and to see if there's anything political that you can offer, not obviously feeding into the whatever, like cultural bigoted stuff might be motivating them. But is there anything political you can do that you can offer that Obama offered successfully? Yeah. Yeah. I, I 100 percent agree with you, um, you know, and especially with with things like climate change, where it, it's not just a serious issue. It's an issue that it needs to be dealt with uh, yesterday, you know, like there's, yeah, I mean, the, the consequences of not attempting to change at least some people's minds uh, is it's, it's too high, you know? Um, yeah, the, the thing about persuasion, and, and Liz teeth this up nicely in her article, and I wrote, I wrote about this in an article years ago again in the week, uh, there, there really is this feeling that people cannot be persuaded. And it's fascinating to me as a lawyer, I, I will acknowledge that I perhaps have an over investment in my own ability to persuade, right? Like I, yeah. it is my livelihood. It is what I do both before and now. I take some pride in kind of like my you know, rhetorical abilities. I have had successes in my life and being able to persuade someone. And I, I recognize that that's like a personal thing and not everyone is necessarily going to have the same confidence or ability or experiences that would lead them to think that that sort of thing is successful. But we're talking about politics. We're talking about people whose literal entire job should be to persuade. Um, yeah. Not just, you know, does your can your cousin persuade your other cousin? No, we're talking about politicians and whether or not they should be taking the case to Americans about various kinds of issues on a national stage. And, you know, when you when you look at the discourse across the spectrum, the ideological spectrum, and then you plug in, nobody here thinks they can convince anybody of anything. It makes all of the emphasis in our political realm become really clear, like why they emphasize what they emphasize. So, you know, the emphasis for the Democratic Party on voting rights, for example. Of course, voting rights and access are enormously important. Of course. But it would be it becomes the sole focus almost when you don't believe you can actually convince any voters based on the substance of your politics. Right. Yeah. You know, well, it, yeah. it actually. OK, so some of this 
surprises me a little bit in a way to hear you say yeah. because like to me you seem like someone and you know these two things could be both true I guess like you seem like someone who thinks rightly away in a way that like I completely agree with that a lot of the reason that um we don't see uh more you know uh m- more things that would materially benefit uh, people's lives mm. um from democratic politicians elected officials is like because they they just don't fucking want to like it's not an issue of like they can't like it, and I feel like there's like you know they're, they're talking about like voting rights like I mean it it is absolutely like morally irrefutable right. that everyone should have the right to vote in my opinion but you know that makes sense also that that's something that they want to do because it it benefits them in some way whereas something like for example um ending the filibuster so that abortion rights can be ensured for everyone regardless of what's happening in the supreme Mm -hmm. court they can do that Mm -hmm. and they don't fucking want Mm -hmm. to yeah well i so i think i mean i think there's a couple things i think that they also don't i mean they don't really want to do they won't really do voting rights either, right? Because like that's another thing that's precluded by the filibuster. Yeah, they, um, you know, we could have had a national voting day. Yeah, since time immemorial. Like these are not. Imagine, you know, we're sitting here, Barack Obama with his, you know, super majorities in Congress, and you know, we could have had a lot of these things. So I do think that you're right that it is both. You know, they they focus on things that are basically not going to happen because of their own obstruction. But the things that they focus on are also like, if they were to happen, not going to result in the kind of sea change that a populist movement would create. Right. So it's like, they have to dangle something out there. They have to do, they have to, the, the, the kabuki dance of doing actual politics has to have something in it. And I think that yeah. they take the, both the low-hanging fruit and also there is a, a layer of policies that they know can't happen because of various procedural obstacles, whether it's because they don't, the slim majorities in the Senate or the filibuster or um, the parliamentarian or what have you. And that there's a, this, this whole net of excuses there's a whole um, infrastructure of excuses they could always fall back on as to why they don't get anything done. So I mean, I think you're, I think you're right. I feel, I don't know. I'm like I would. I'm trying to think about like where my head was at, like psychologically, like let's say uh, Feb twenty, Feb twenty twenty, like you know, right after New Hampshire or something. Like I was really optimistic that change might be possible from within the Democratic Party. But then, like, you know, to me, it it really feels like uh, (laughs) if anything really good is going to happen, like it it will be crushed um, by the institution of the Democratic Party. Where where do you land on that at this point? Yeah, it's really it's really difficult because at the end of the day, the the struggle between the historical struggle on the left between kind of reformists I'm doing air quotes for all this <laughs> reformists yeah. versus um, ultra leftists uh, is who is correct in their assessment of what the moment can bear 
And, you know, one end of the left, which would be uncharitably described as ultra left, is saying that the reformists are really under assessing what the, the, the moment can bear and basically just advocating for the kinds of reforms that's going to ultimately perpetuate a, a deeply unequal system instead of just taking it all down in the, in, in the first instance. The people that would be perhaps uncharitably called reformist say, okay, if we say we want to do like full anarchy now or whatever, no one's going to get on board with your program and you're not going to be able to get the kinds of reforms that would meaningfully change people's life, a $15 minimum wage, what have you. Right now we're in this place where even policies which I think would adequately be described or accurately be described as reformist, like a $15 minimum wage, are meeting the kind of pushback that you would expect from an overhaul of our healthcare system. Yeah. I mean, 15 fucking dollars also. Right. It's like not a lot of money. It's not. Like, and, and in the richest, and God bless Bernie for putting this in our, our vernacular, all of that in the richest country in the history of the world. I mean, you really yeah, cannot. it's disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So it, it, we're in this world where it's almost impossible. You know, it, it, our circumstances make so many of us reformists because, of course, we want a living wage. <laughs> Right. Like, yeah, it feels, that makes sense. it's irresponsible not to be asking, especially in the middle of this crisis, for some basic reforms. But that also, in effect, I think, gives cover for people who are sincerely reformists. Right. Like there's the, it almost makes it so it's very difficult to ask for more, which I think the moment might actually bear because people are suffering so much. Right. There's this catch 22 where yeah. all of our elected officials can say things plausibly credibly and I, I you know this is not wrong but they say things like it's so bad out there i will compromise if there's a game of chicken with republicans i'm going to compromise because our my constituents need x y and z this was the argument around why they didn't for, fight for 15 around the uh, care package right you know this is uh, several of the progressive um congresswomen basically made that explicit argument. I need to take things home for New York's 14th. I have people who need X, Y, and Z. You have- Are you talking about like the squad? The squad, yeah. You, I mean, you have- As they are known. <laughs> as they yeah. are known. <laughs> um, <laughs> you had AOC, you know, like rightly, I think, uh, understandably from a, you know, kind of like a humane perspective saying, I secured these burial funds for my constituents. This means something to the people that I look in Ooh. the eye every day. Like I understand that I mean, on an interpersonal level. Yeah. But also, like, uh, we're in a, in a, in a once-in-a-generation crisis, and we're kind of accepting that at least people can put their dead loved ones in the ground. Yeah, and so it's very sad that that is, like, something that would be a win. Right, and, and, and both know? things can be true, right? Like, I never want to minimize the, re the difficulty of having to look people in the eye and be responsible for them as their representatives. That's a role that I'm not in. That's not a responsibility that I don't have. And I'm not going to sit here on a high horse and say, oh, AOC, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, people who are in very low-income districts. Uh, Rashida Tlaib, I think, is one of the lowest in the country. And to not be like, God, like this program this child tax credit, whatever it is, is going to make or break somebody's life that I have to look at and be responsive to every day in my local office. Like that is a difficult emotional weight to bear. I don't want to be dismissive of that. But the, the reality is also that always taking the scraps because people are so desperate is 
a way to guarantee that people are always going to be that desperate. It's a vicious cycle. Because yeah. they're never going to get the real reform, the more radical reform, that is going to substantially and permanently change their material status in the richest country in the history of the world. Yeah, I mean, I... <sighs> I, I definitely agree with you regarding that vicious cycle. Um, so, you know, I know that, you know, like, obviously, like, earlier this year, late last year, I don't remember the exact timeline, but you were a big advocate of forced to vote. And that is, th that specific window has, has passed. But, like, um, you know, how would you like to see these, progressive Congress people operating like at, at this point with like what's, you know, ahead in the future yeah. right now. Well, that specific window has passed. And I know that a lot of folks are like, <laughs> Brianna, why do you keep talking about this? But the reason is because the leverage mechanism that was being described and that one that we wanted, you know, the Congress, the progressive Congress people to exploit is one that will come up again and again and again, as long as we have yeah. narrow margins in the House and the Senate. Right. It's not. It's not just the House. I mean, Bernie could do it too. Elizabeth Warren ostensibly could do it too. Any one senator could be a Joe Manchin or a Kirsten Cinema if they. But so like decide. from the left. From the left. Yeah. From the left. Yeah. Um, so what made Force of Vote so fascinating is that the downsides were almost they, they were nil. So when we're talking yeah. about this question of oh, do I deliver for my constituents or do I? You know, do I get the care package stuff and, and get the vaccine rollout and get it going? Or do I take a stand for $15 minimum wage? There's no gamble when it's just, do I vote for Nancy Pelosi or not? I mean, the downside and is Nancy Pelosi isn't speaker of the house. Like, that's the upside. Yeah. The upside is, yeah. there's no downside. Yeah. Um, either. But do, do you think it was like a thing where like they were, and I, I actually mm -hmm. don't know, but do you think it's a thing where they were, you know, concerned about, you know, retaliation yes. that would have like landed them even less power. Yeah, so the downside was personal. Um, the yeah. downside was to the political, I don't want to say ambitions because it makes it sound like it's just their own person. I don't mean it in that way. I just mean but what they could, what the, what the individual squad members could ostensibly potentially achieve in their political office down the line because Nancy Pelosi would ostensibly withdraw committee appointments and make their lives very difficult, et cetera. So normally, and then that's, and that's real, that's true. My argument is that, would be that people like AOC explicitly said they'd rather be a one-term congressperson than to give in to those kinds of pressures. Yeah. And obviously changed her mind at some point between 2018 and January of this year. And my argument would be that in a, a world where Nancy Pelosi went in on an all-out war with these very popular squad members, which unlike most members of the House, are financially independent of Nancy Pelosi because they have donations from people like us who genuinely believed in their commitment to fighting for the people first, right? Yeah. And that put them in a unique position to be able to withstand the onslaught of Nancy Pelosi, at least from a fundraising perspective. Already, AOC had more money spent against her and her in the last cycle to unseat her than any other person in Congress. And she persevered because she has I mean she has she's beloved and has no fundraising issues right yeah. and a lot of other people in Congress can't say that so I think that the squad members are uniquely positioned to actually take that kind of stand now will they lose committee appointments potentially but they already 
failed to get any additional committee appointments between last cycle and now, despite the fact that the idea that they were going to get better committee appointments or additional committee appointments was held out as the reason why they were, weren't going to force the vote. All of that, none of that materialized. Uh, Katie Porter lost her seat on the Financial Services Committee. They didn't actually secure the end of PAYGO as it was represented by some in the left media. Um, nobody, everybody got the exact same appointments that they did otherwise from the previous year and nothing, nothing changed. I mean, you, you definitely make some really good points here. Like, you know, they're already being punished. They're already being punished. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, what, what would they really be losing additionally? I mean, I guess for, for myself, like, you know, when people talk about like, um, you know, like the idea of uh, like primarying AOC was like briefly floated. I, I don't know how seriously, but to me, it seems like, all right, like, let's say, you know, we uh, primaried AOC and we replaced her with like, you know, an anarcho communist, <laughs> like it's still within the structure of like Congress as it, it's, it's as it stands now, like seems like it would do very little to, um, to to actually make a difference in in political outcomes. Um, Well, I do think that there is value in elected Congress people showing the contrast between what could be done and what, where the obstruction is, right? Highlighting where the actual obstruction is. Because I think one of the most pernicious things about our country is that well-meaning liberals genuinely believe that the reason that we don't have a better world (laughs) is because Republicans are just big and bad. Yeah, they mostly believe that. And they ignore Barack Obama's supermajority. They ignore the fact that the Democrats have the White House and both houses of Congress. They ignore all of that. And the media, the corporate media is very, they're, they're like primary objective. One of their main goals is to maintain this veneer that the reason why America isn't better is because Republicans are bad, there's too much polarization, blah, 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 blah. Like that's the narrative. Red, blue, polarized, polarized, polarized. And there's an alternative world you could imagine where every day people get on TV and say, on both channels, 60% of Americans, or it's more like in the 70s, support a, a $15 minimum wage. You know, 88% of Democrats and about 49% of Republicans support Medicare for all. Overwhelming majorities of Americans, why don't we have it? and focus the ire at the corporatists in both parties that are blocking each and every one of those overwhelmingly popular reforms. And I think that part of the magic of Bernie in 2016 was that he was willing to turn to Hillary Clinton and say, well, the Democratic Party is part of the problem. And that was really revelatory for millions of Americans, right? And got a lot of people who did not identify as as Democrats on board because of that honesty. And I think that if AOC and some of the squad members were more willing more often, and they do sometimes, I want to give credit where credit's due, but if they were more willing more often to say, well, Nancy Pelosi is part of the problem. Joe Biden is part of the problem. Joe Biden could, you know, erase student loan debt tomorrow and he's choosing not to instead of kind of playing along the way that they do much of the time, it would help to crystallize for American voters what their what their options really are and make different choices at the ballot box. Because ultimately someone's going to I mean, unless we're truly like doing pulling the whole system really, really down it to enact the kind of reforms that we want, you know, someone's going to have to vote for them in Congress. And I'd rather AOC be there than someone else. I'd rather Nina Turner be there than um, Chantel Brown. But also yeah. 
once we get those people in, they're not going to actually be effective if there isn't a huge, much far, much more left radical force pushing them to do what we want in lieu of yeah. pulling the whole thing down. It's like, do what we want <laughs> or actually the, the Corinthian columns start com- crumbling down. Yeah, I mean, and I think that like the way that history is told in in this country, um, you know, like it it kind of um, sort of teaches people to to think like that. Mm-hmm. Like when it when um, Adam Johnson wrote a piece that I really liked the other day, and it was about Labor Day mm-hmm. and you know how like these labor victories, um, like basically you know the labor laws that we have, like how they're always talked about as like you know. Uh, progressive progressives like benevolently decided to like give people this stuff and that it was all just you know like a certain enlightened legislatures and not like really like erasing like you know the communist movement and the the labor movement and all of these things that really put a lot of outside pressure and it's the same thing with the new deal like the new deal happens because they were fucking afraid of communists. It's not because like FDR just ruled so hard, which is usually how it gets talked about, you know? And so I think that like, I think that the way that like movements interact with electoralism is something that, this country seems to be uniquely naive about. Correct. Well, it didn't used to be right to your point, but these days, I mean, it's what's really telling is look, I came up, this is this sounds a little like narcissistic the way I describe it, but this is my my perspective, obviously. But I came up kind of in the world of media and journalism at the same time that AOC was. I got you know my my first like I think AOC uh, AOC's video went viral. Her like campaign video went viral and put her on the map like a the a week after I started at the Intercept. And Aida Chavez's reporting on AOC was some of the first like big reporting on her and her race and I was got immediately put on the AOC beat and I was there when she unexpectedly won her primary in a room that was almost empty until she won and then it was flooded by everyone from Cynthia Nixon to every cable news channel you know and so I have been there for every step of this rise and sincerely felt the excitement and investment in her as an individual right I'm not someone who's going to sit here I'm not I don't have any personal animus if anything I was kind of like unprofessionally enamored by her <laughs> yeah the way everybody like, was i do not have uh, journalistic <laughs> objectivity i am in a i'm going full lib and yes queen i can't i can't you know, stop myself I, my hoops and my yeah. red earrings on. I mean my red yeah. you know, my hoops and red lipstick on like everybody else but i i also understand that it is deeply irresponsible for the left including like the biggest, most left portions of organized leftism in America to be walking around in AOC t-shirts. Like that can't be the thing. There has to be something separate. I want liberals in AOC t-shirts. Yeah. That's not a knock at AOC, but I, I, there has to be some political contingent that is pushing and not cheerleading or AOC is not empowered to do anything. Like AOC needs to be able to say to Chuck Schumer, look, I want to help you out, but these crazy commies are knocking down my door. And if we don't compromise with them, then it's going to get a lot worse. And if we're just yeah. like, whatever AOC does is wonderful and great. And I don't mean to make AOC the face of this. Obviously, there are a lot of progressives and AOC gets, I think, undue focus, you know, in this regard. But all of the progressives, like 
if if AOC and the squad members are the utmost left flank of the movement, then the compromise becomes becomes whatever's between Chuck Schumer and AOC instead of between what's between Chuck Schumer and me, which is AOC. Right. And ostensibly, yeah. if AOC wants her agenda passed, then there has to be someone to the left of her. There just has to be. And yeah. all of these cheerleaders are not doing her any service by pretending that anybody who is at all adversarial to the Democratic Party or is at all willing to push her as a Democratic elected official is somehow making a personal attack or it's, it's based in some personal animus or jealousy or grifting or any other, other kinds of terms that get thrown around on the left. I I agree. I think that, you know, there's a really toxic idea that has permeated, you know, largely as a result of, like, cable news um, that, like, it's everyone's job to be, you know, a, a pundit that, like, is thinking about, like, what is going to be, like, palatable mm. to voters instead of thinking about, like, what they personally want and that like it's a job even of you know leftists to be sort of like even being like okay you know we can't say abolish the police because i mean what portion of americans are really going to go for that so you know we have to yep. you know scale it way back but no like you have to say abolish the police because like otherwise none of that right. other shit is going to happen you have to explain i was talking to a prominent lefty um politico the other day and we were having this exact same conversation and she was saying, you know, it's not that you have to ignore the political reality. She's very involved in like helping progressive candidates run and get a platform and, you know, to create a bigger squad, which, you know, I'm not opposed to at, at all. But we were talking about how these individuals should deal with some of the complications that arise between appealing to a left audience that very much wants you to say things like defund the police and believe in things like defund the police, but also sometimes they're appealing, trying to, to run in much more conservative parts of the country or not conservative parts of the country, parts of the country like New York City, where Eric Adams just won the mayoral race with a more conservative message, because frankly, people, I don't know, our ideas of conservative and, and, and liberal are lacking in nuance and yeah, I agree with you. So, you know, we were talking about it, like, and I was saying, like, the issue isn't the slogan defund the police. It's that everyone only talks about defund the police in terms of its kind of comms merit. And the conversation about what defund actually means as a consequence gets completely sidelined. And people who live in high crime areas who are disproportionately black and brown never get to have a conversation about public safety. And it's perceived to be that defund the police is contrary to those public safety goals, which obviously are important, right? Yeah. And it's not that the left needs to stop saying defund the police, but they do need to figure out a way to articulate how defund is not at odds with public safety goals and what it is about defund that's actually going to improve the lifestyle and the safety in low income neighborhoods. So you got to say a second sentence. You got to make the conversation about the fact that we have been throwing money at police budgets for decades without any added benefit to the safety in these communities. And that at the end of the day, we know what the root causes of crime are. And we should address them at their root and give money to the people in those communities instead of to bloated police budgets. Now, I can't soundbite that 
as quick as defund, but if every time the defund conversation came up, people rerouted it to that substantive discussion instead of saying, well, this poll says that defund doesn't poll well with this group and this fund, this poll says that and these voters went this way and these black voters said the other thing. That's, I mean, to your point about punditry, everyone's a pundit and nobody is doing persuasion. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's definitely really disheartening, and I I think it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty frustrating thing. Um, you know, just kind of like along the same lines, back to what you were talking about earlier, uh, in terms of p- people making defenses for the Democratic Party. I mean, like everyone has these lines memorized. Oh, we can't do it because of the filibuster. Mm-hmm. Oh, we can't do it because of Chuck or not Chuck Schumer. We can't do it because of Joe Manchin mm-hmm. and Kristen Cinema. We can't do it because um, the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And like, th- there's like a thousand excuses that um, th- that like any liberal Democrat is is ready to bust out to explain away why their party can't do anything, even though they have the executive branch mm-hmm. and uh, both <laughs> the mm-hmm. House and the Senate. Um, do you think that there is any way to talk about why Democrats can actually do something in a way that like could potentially wake people up from this collective delusion. Well, I think in some ways it's starting to happen. There's some cracks. I mean, I've seen some pundits who are, you know, typically I think more liberal than the left. Um, And I don't mean that as a critique. I just mean that descriptively people like, you know, Ellie Mistel and even Jason Johnson who are very frustrated about, the filibuster and Biden's reluctance to get rid of it, in part because voting rights is an issue they care about so much, right? So I think in particular, I've seen a lot of black pundits who are very invested in these kind of core democratic issues like voting rights, the abortion issue is obviously galvanizing a lot of folks. And the idea that Joe Biden could enshrine a you know, row into law the way he ran on and said he would do if he got rid of the filibuster. All of these kinds of things are making folks who otherwise would give defenses of Biden slowly start to peel away and be like, okay, but actually, why aren't you doing this? And their issue might not have been student debt, which he could also do with a flick of a pen, regardless of the filibuster. Um, But when it comes to some of these issues that the Democratic Party has held out as core to their agenda, even people who are really hardcore Democratic Party adherents are now saying, wait, you won't do that either? You know, yeah. You're not going to give it a little bit, even for voting rights, after all of this time you've been saying that black people are the base of the party and yada, 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 you're still going to renege on that? And that gives me some hope. And this goes back to the point we were making in the beginning about, um, you know, the Democratic Party kind of, there are things that it says it can't do flat out because of the filibuster, and there are things that it like pretends that it can do, but never end up happening like these voting rights and your point was you know they don't want to do any of it and I would agree but they have trotted out some of it as like we actually do want to do it right they don't never really pretended they wanted to cancel student debt but they will trot out oh yeah we really did want to have voting you know the John Lewis Voting Rights Act or whatever and because they did that because they at least pretended to want to do some of it now that they are it's coming more clear that they could and won't do those things. That's what's galvanizing people. That's what's causing even liberals to question Joe Biden. And I think that there's a real opportunity there. And why I will lean into some things like, okay, let's, you know, the pro act, like whatever it is that people want to get behind, I don't care if it's not my issue, but where there are those cracks where even liberals are upset with Joe Biden, I think that 
those are really good opportunities to really lean in. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I have said enough times like, oh, you know, this is going to be the issue that galvanizes liberals. But I mean, I'm thinking like in particular, you know, like these abortion laws, I mean, or if the Supreme Court goes all the way to striking down Roe v. Wade, which I, I actually think that they might not do. Um, Politically, it's but, better for them to do it in the shadow dockety way. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, I mean, like when it comes to white liberal feminists, like a- abortion is like the one, mm-hmm. you know, and um, I mean, to, to me, like this Texas law is, is like utterly fucking horrific, but it was also already pretty much illegal to get an abortion in Texas. Yeah. Like there's just there's not places to do it, you know, yeah. um, you know my concern is that I mean, look. I don't want to be overly cynical and it's still early days, but Trump got Trump got elected and then there was a women's march. Yeah. And maybe there will be an uprising, but it it's a little I'm a little worried that while there's been a lot of like big bad tweeting, like I, I don't are people going to be mad enough for this for that really to be the precipitating event? I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I don't know either, because now that you're talking about this, I'm like, you're right. Like, if Donald Trump wasn't, I mean, pro- I don't know, man. I just, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> maybe it's... The people, women will march. Women will march against the idea of, they marched. They did. It was huge against the idea of Donald Trump getting rid of abortion rights. But then it actually happened, ostensibly, and... I don't see it. I don't see the energy and the uprising outside of the internet. Like I remember, like Reza Aslan or or whatever, like did a tweet when RBG died. Like, if if they even try, if Trump even tries to replace her, we're gonna tear it all down. And it's like these people love to say stuff like that. Yeah, but they, I love to make empty threats as well. You know, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I mean, they don't. They don't. It's it's very satisfying, but you know. <laughs> So I, I think it's going to have to be something that affects more vulnerable. I mean, that's not the way I want to say this. I think a lot of the energy around abortion issues tends to come from more affluent women. It affects yeah. lower income women a thousand times more, but they've been affected all this time. Like this is to your point, like it's all it's been next to impossible for lower income women to get abortions in a lot of these places for a really long time. And even in liberal states, because of cost, it's prohibitively expensive. Right. So. It's it's not, it's it's that this doesn't feel like as much of a change for the communities that are going to be the most affected. So I just wonder politically if that for that reason this is going to be the thing that sets people off. But I don't know. I mean, we're all just watching and waiting and seeing. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I really like want to believe that there's going to be like a thing that sets more people off. But you know, ah man, it it rarely goes down like that, right? Well, like, well part of it is like no one, no one is. I mean, no one's calling for, I mean, there's no, there's no leaders. And this is where we get back to the Bernie thing. It's like, or the squad thing. I, it's not anybody's responsibility to be a leader. I can't, you know, no, nobody can make anybody do something that they don't want to do and to incur all of that risk. And that risk is real. You know, Marion Williamson talks a lot about how, like, the reason why all of the energy from the 60s and 70s went away is because they just literally killed everybody. They murdered all the leaders. The state did, <laughs> like, you know, like they all got killed. So I, I, I don't say this lightly, but the reality is that we are at, at an economic crisis point 
and the media is papering over it and Joe Biden is heralding the recovery and black unemployment rates are at an all-time high and people are told to send their kids back into school with a a, a Delta variant rampaging and 600,000 Americans are dead and we just had a couple of weeks ago was like the highest like we went back to matching our highest COVID peak from you know this time last year and it 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 feels like this should be a moment where somebody is calling at a bare minimum for mass strikes and protests and the political leadership is nowhere to be seen yeah and I, yeah i mean you, you, i think i saw a uh, ilhan omar do i mean I saw like one tweet about how there should be a general strike. And I don't know, she may have said it more than once, but it was like. And we have on the show, you know, the thing on bad faith is I'm not an expert. I'm not an organizer. And I would never pretend to know to be an authority on any of this stuff. But, you know, I, I, I listened to what the organizer said. I listened to everybody come on the show and tell me what the theory of change was and how things happen. And they all told me, okay, it's labor power withholding labor. Okay. And so then I have a bunch of union leaders and, um, organizers on the show and I said okay well how do we do this and they said well we don't have union density and there are all these excuses why we can't do sh- strikes I'm like well okay <laughs> so 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 what is there and then you see this history of wildcat strikes you see all of the strikes that happened in the last couple of years with the, with all the teacher strikes um, and you see that there are things happening but they aren't covered as part of a, a broader movement of labor dissatisfaction and agitation if they're covered at all and it it starts to feel like it's not that there's not an appetite for and that people aren't that workers aren't willing to take these risks risks that by the way we should all be supporting with strike funds and stuff that nobody's calling for um but that the leadership isn't willing to pull the proverbial trigger and that's the part that starts to become really demoralizing for me. It would be one thing if we lived in this crisis point and the people were just like so disaffected that they didn't want to do anything. But that's not what I'm observing. What I'm observing is that everyone is kind of sitting there trembling at the starting line, waiting for a gun to go off and, you know, start running. But no one no one will pull that proverbial trigger. Yeah, I mean, last summer there was obviously like mass protests mm. and, and direct actions and like to be honest with you when that target started burning i was like maybe some shit's gonna mm. go down like you know but it has been like really amazing to see like how fast like even the energy from like you know the certainly the biggest uprising that i've ever seen what was, in my lifetime it was actually the biggest biggest mass protest in american history it was more people yeah, in the streets that's, what, than that's ever. what i thought but I didn't want to say that inaccurately, but like, you know, it's like amazing because like there was so many like liberals who I think really, you know, started to get on board with stuff like defund. Mm-hmm. And then like now, you know, we just like see people like really backtracking on it, you know? Well, um, you know, you say it happened fast, but it, they had to put in some work because yeah. the media was with with the protesters at first. Then stuff started to burn, and then there was a quick about face where suddenly Don Lemon and everybody were trotted out to say that this is property damage is violence and bad. <laughs> and um, they had to basically make the argument that to support the protest was to damn us to another four years of Trump. That was yeah. the argument that was made last summer that ultimately quieted everybody down. That 
that these protests and the defund slogan was bad for Biden's election chances and that a trade-off had to be made between millions of people who are angry about the public execution of a man, a human being, and Joe Biden's ability to knock Trump out of office. And all of those millions of people in the street made that compromise. The movement leaders made that compromise tacitly by not ever connecting any of the demands of the Black Lives Matter movement to uh, voting for Joe Biden. There was never a moment where they said, of course, we'll vote for you. We will register all these people in the streets. We will make sure they go to the polls if you actually address our needs, the concerns of this movement, the agenda of this movement. Quite to the contrary, Joe Biden said that he was more for funding the police as those protests were going. Um, Black Lives Matter. He, he said, like, shoot people in the leg shoot, instead. Shoot people just really. <laughs> Thank you for reminding I mean, me just, of that. <laughs> yeah, just some really, truly wild shit. Truly, <laughs> it was like, truly wild. <laughs> yeah. And then he said, the one thing he did say was that he was going to pass the George Floyd Act by the one year anniversary of his death. That came and went and nobody said a peep. Al mm. Sharpton was trotted out to say, oh, we'd rather have a good act than one that was passed hastily. So it's OK that Joe Biden has reneged on this promise. It's not like police violence has been going on for like a while to give people time to deal with this <laughs> or whatever. I mean, right. And so many of the things, by the way, in the George Floyd Act could be passed by executive order. Right. Yeah. Um, just write them down. So, and sign it. Something that uh, Sherilyn Eiffel uh, pointed out um, in the now famous, it should be more famous, but the leaked call Biden had with civil rights leaders last fall, where he basically dressed them down for advocating for black issues. And she made the point, this was the uh, NAACP Legal Defense Fund head, chair, chief, president, I don't know um, what her, uh, the honorific is. But she made the point that he could do all these things by executive order because at that time they didn't know that they were gonna win Georgia. And they didn't know that he was going to be able to pass these things legislatively. So she made a whole list of things that he could do all on his own. And he has not done so. And when I pointed this out, that people should follow Sherilyn Eiffel's advice and push Joe Biden to do these things by executive order, uh, she blocked me. <laughs> oh, my God. I thought I was helping her out. And she blocked me. And I think that the reason might be, and I'm, this might be overly cynical and I might be wrong, and I would love to be corrected. I would love to have Sheila Eiffel on the show. She's, I've looked up to her and admired her for a really long time for her legal advocacy. But she is widely considered to be on the short list for the next Supreme Court justice because Biden has said he will, will appoint a black woman. And what it begins to feel like is everybody is exchanging their advocacy for a seat at the table. And just like it might be the case that it's good for progressives to compromise to get the CARES Act and throw all the, the longer term agenda under the bus, it might be the case that Sherilyn Eiffel is right, that it's better for her to be on the Supreme Court for 30 years than for her to try and potentially fail to get Joe Biden to do executive orders to help um, pass aspects of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. That might be a reasonable trade-off in her head and in, in reality. But the, the reason that we aren't living in a better world is because every single person is making that short-term trade-off. Every single person is making that trade-off and nobody is willing to take a stand in this moment. And I gotta tell you, it's deeply frustrating that I am a bourgeois podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm the one saying this. Yeah. Well, Brie, this has really been a pleasure. You're always so insightful and we love talking to you. I mean, like um, our listeners probably know where to find you, but 
any, anything that you have coming up that you're feeling really excited about? Our Thursday episode of Bad Faith, which is our free public episode, will feature uh, the one and only Jill Stein. <laughs> Fuck yeah. <laughs> which I'm sure a lot of people have thoughts and feelings about. I've never actually it's spoken gonna to It's going to be a great day on the internet <laughs> for you. Be yet another fabulous day on I, the internet. I can't wait for the positive reaction <laughs> that you're going to get from doing I'm that. I'm going to ask yeah. her about um, our plan to conspire to end Roe v. Wade. Uh, which yeah. me and uh, Susan Sarandon were blamed for all of last week. So um, that should be fun. And people should check out if they haven't already our riotous uh, dating episode, which there's full video of for patrons at, pa- at badfaith.com, patreon.com slash badfaithpodcast. And um, we put a lot of videos and clips from every episode, even the paywalled ones up on YouTube so you can get a taste of what's going on. So head over to Bad Faith YouTube, like, subscribe, help us boost the algorithm and see the wonderful, hilarious Kate over there as well. Well, thank you. Um, It's been so much fun. And yes, please listen to Bad Faith. And uh, yeah, we will uh, hopefully, hopefully get to chat again soon. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Reply Guys, where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers, journalists, and comedians, with an additional episode uploaded each week. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at O Julia Tweets, O-H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can, of course, also find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. Walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land. This land is mine.